All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. The airlock has been sealed and the cabin has been depressurized. That's right. The craft, the Mars magazine craft, is back. This is Adario Strange here with Big Song. And this week, well, first of all, welcome back to the States. Yay! I'm back. I made it alive. Welcome back to the Rotten Apple. You survived Asia. The zombies on the train to Busan did not get you. No, no, they did not. I outran them. And and speaking of Japan, we want to dive right into a set of new trailers that just got released for the movie Ghost in the Shell. Uh, The movie is starring Scarlett Johansson, controversially starring Scarlett Johansson. And the studio released five different, I'm going to say about 15 seconds each trailers. Yeah, uh, so they're not really, yeah, they're not really trailers. They're more like teasers, but they were really, really well done. I I have begrudging respect for. It. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so one we see what looks like a little robot geisha girl walking mm-hmm. down this hallway, and she has like this plastic robot geisha face. It just looked amazing. Another we see. Uh, People who are fans of the Ghost in the Shell uh, anime franchise uh, know that there's a very iconic scene of the main character waking up in her bed uh, against, like, the backdrop of the city. And she, like, unplugs herself from, like, kind of her, I guess, charging port or whatever it is. And we see Scarlett Johansson, like, go through that exact same scene in this tiny teaser. And there are a couple of other scenes, um, one where she walks into a room where everyone, I guess, is like a, it looks like about 30 men who are all dressed the same, all bald, and they're all kind of like wires coming out of their head. So I guess they're jacked into the system. Do you remember the other ones? Uh, there's Beat Takeshi. Oh, Beat Takeshi, yes. Yeah. He's that was a like, surprise. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was shocked. I didn't know he was part of the project. Um, and for anyone out there listening who doesn't know who Beat Takeshi is, he is one of the most famous Japanese comedians who also plays um, like crime boss gangsters in Yakuza movies. Uh, for if you've ever heard of Battle Royale, he was the teacher in that. So uh, he's kind of like a big deal in Asia. Yeah, it was surprising to see him pop up because I assume that there was some mention made of him being involved. Maybe not, but I was I was completely taken off guard. Was, was there another one? I feel like there was that was like four um, of them. Yeah, no, there's another one where uh, Scarlett Johansson is like kind of leaning into another character. Like, ah, right, right, like yeah, something like that. She's and just, the the woman asks, "What are you?" Yeah. Interestingly, let's dive right into the controversy. So the controversy for those out there who don't know is that the Ghost in the Shell, the major character is at least for all appearances in the original uh, anime franchise uh, Asian at least that that was my assumption and I assume Japanese and there was a big controversy that Scarlett Johansson a a white actor was taking the role that should have been played by at at the least an Asian actor and at best you know best case scenario a Japanese actor mm-hmm. and so that's been the controversy so this it was interesting to see this black woman I don't, I don't know if she was, I guess she was human because she was asking mm-hmm. Scarlett, what are you? So I guess I'm assuming she was human. But it was interesting that they chose that to put in a film that isn't generally known for having or in a franchise that's not generally known for having black characters. I mean, did that strike you as odd? It did strike me as odd because um, there's another, I forget which of the five teasers it's in, but there's like another close up on a man. And I believe it's a white man in you know, this franchise, I forget what it was. He looks slightly like off bald or something like, you know, he kind of looks weird. (laughs) Off Um, bald? What is off bald? Yeah, he's off bald. He looks, (laughs) it was more like he looks slightly off comma bald. Off comma Um, bald. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what that is. Okay. 
he 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 just doesn't look you know particularly Asian. And I won I'm, I was wondering when I was watching it if this was their way of saying, "Hey guys, so we know it's set in Japan in the future, but we're like making it future Japan, super multiracial." So, like, get off our backs about the Scarlett Johansson uh, controversy, hmm. especially since um, I don't believe she was featured in any of the the, the teasers. But uh, Japanese actress Kaoru Mamoi, or uh, I'm totally butchering her last name, but she plays Scarlett Johansson's mother, I believe, hmm. and she's a Japanese woman. Hmm. So that yeah, I heard about that. Of, yeah, that, and she apparently uh, has no problem with the casting race issue. I think she had like did an interview where she said she had no problem with it, which seems to echo the sentiments of other uh, Japanese people who are like well known, uh, at least in the manga I- industry uh, in Japan. They don't seem to have a problem with it. Um, I'm guessing that when it comes out in Japan, they won't have a problem with it. Um, yeah, I, you know it's, this it's- this seems like it's more of kind of like a stateside issue just due to, I guess, the history of Hollywood and kind of like the state of the nation with regard to race. Whereas, you know, back in Japan, we both lived there. I think we both pretty much can say with confidence, I'm I'm speaking for you, but I think you agree. They probably won't have a problem with Scarlett. They'll probably actually be happy to see Scarlett Johansson in that role. I think you're right. Because they just don't really have that same, they don't really have the same problem in in the sense that they get representation in their home market. So for them, the logic is that, you know, this movie is taking place in English, one. Um, then two, if they, they, their view is if they want international viewers, then they need to have like a big Hollywood star in it that a big Japanese star carrying it in an international market, well, they would be immensely proud at that. They don't, I I believe that they don't think that that would be enough to give it a certain level of prestige, you know? So I think that's where they're coming from. And, you know, you see the same logic with uh, that Matt Damon movie that's coming out. What's it called again? Uh, The Great Wall, where you have, a huge cast of really famous Chinese actors in that, but they like pull Matt Damon in for the international like name brand value. So I think that in Japan, at least that's the logic that they're going to be going with. Whereas in America, the Asian American community sees it as a chance to have one of our own kind of being on the screen uh, in front of people in a famous franchise and it's an opportunity that just kind of went to someone who doesn't maybe necessarily need the opportunity. Okay. And so, well, and now here's the question though. We've seen the teasers and we don't know if this is going to be a great film. We don't know Mm -hmm. if the teasers will lead to a cohesive, impactful cinematic experience. But most of the people I, you know, I, after they came out, I kind of looked at the online chatter and it seems like most people were pretty impressed with the footage. So does this mean that if what you do is impressive enough that, you know, this kind of race bending controversy or considerations of this kind of stuff will go out the window? I mean, are you going to see it? Were you seduced? So I'm going to be real right now and say that the whole ScarJo uh, controversy, it did, it did get, you know, it did hackle. My hackles were raised. My feathers were ruffled. Um, Especially once that whole news came out that they, you know, uh, the rumor that the studio played with software to make her look more Asian. Uh, That's a rumor. So we can't, we can't confirm that. That's no, no. Like that's, that's what I was saying. It's a rumor, but but I, I just mean like the fact that that even was a rumor that was circulated just kind of, you know, tells you how bad the feeling is within at least the Asian American community regarding ghost in the shell. Um, so, you know, that's kind of going in what the feeling is. And I saw these trailers and I was like, shoot, this looks good. This looks nice. This looks like something, if it wasn't like a Japan thing, if I had no idea what it was, I would kind of think it's cool and would want to check it out. So I have a lot of really conflicting feelings about that. And I just, for me, it raises a question about source material and authorial intent. Because if you're watching Ghost in the Shell, the original anime, 
like the Japanese-ness of it feels pretty intrinsic to the world that they've like created. I'm going to think about whether I want to see the film. Oh, come away. You're not Yui. You're saying there's a chance you might not see this film. Uh, I don't, like, come, hey, hey, real talk. Real talk. Come on. I mean, there there is a chance. <laughs> the robot geisha. I, come on. There, There's a chance I may not pay to see the film. Does that make sense? Oh, because... easy. <laughs> the Mars Magazine podcast disavows any actions on the part of Megan Twin. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I mean, okay. One thing before we uh, move forward uh with regard to kind of like sticking to the source material i noticed that when she woke up in her in the iconic bedroom scene i actually went back and looked at that a few times because something looked a little bit off and i looked at it and if you go back and look at the trailer maybe you already noticed this but it actually looks like hong kong outside of her window it doesn't look like tokyo and even if you Think of, okay, well, maybe it's future Tokyo. No, this is even future Tokyo. I've lived there long enough. I'm a fan of the architecture and the old architecture, the new stuff. Nothing about what was in the, in this, in the glass outside of her apartment looked like Tokyo. It looked for all the world like Hong Kong or, or possibly some part of China, but definitely not Tokyo. So it made me think so. You know, just to like, this is maybe kind of more like aesthetics, art direction, but it also made me think, okay, along the same lines of what you were mentioning, it made me think, okay, maybe they don't really care about the Japanese parts, except in a very, I don't know, superficial way. I mean, we have the robot geisha, we have beat Takeshi, and I got to be honest, no disrespect to beat Takeshi, but that's kind of easy. That's kind of like putting... Who's the guy that Japan always puts? He he's one half of uh, Men in Black next to uh, oh Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy, Tommy Lee, Jones. Lee Jones. So he's kind of like Beat Takeshi is kind of like the Tommy Lee Jones of Japan. So Ooh, that's good. That's you know, good. so they they basically just jam him in to Ghost in the Shell and go, hey hey look see you know paying respect to Japan. And when I see Tommy Lee Jones in a film in in Japan it, or in a in a commercial in Japan, it doesn't make me think like, oh, wow, this is definitely like sophisticated, international. It just makes me think, oh, right. This is the guy who always does yeah. the Japan uh, promotions or whatever. So Beat Takeshi is very much the same. You know, No disrespect to Beat Takeshi. I've seen films, particularly some of his uh, older Yakuza film work, amazing, dramatic work. But in general, he is one of their kind of, you know, biggest promo guys. So it's it's not like this amazing look to have him in there. So and then you mentioned one actress uh, who's the mother. So I guess she'll play a part. But I just I got the sense that if you can't even get the background scenery outside of Scarlett Johansson's uh, mate, the major Kusanagi's uh, apartment, right? You know, how much attention are you really going to pay to the Japanese aspects of this? And hey, for all we know, maybe they'll set it in Hong Kong. But I doubt that's the case if you're going to show a robot geisha in the beginning of the film. So I, I don't know. Yeah, so, it's, it's it's kind of weird. And, you know, I don't know how I feel about just them saying like, well, I know we put a, like, a white person in the main role. But look, we, we have a bunch of really famous people from that country actually in supporting roles. Like, that's nice. But it's also, I think... It's. I think some people would feel like that's just throwing a dog a bone. That kind mm-hmm. of, you know, not nice feelings are engendered by that. So, I, you know, a lot of mixed feelings, at least on my part, about it. And I'm just going to say, you know, if we must race bend in the case of uh, Ghost in the Shell, you know, I think a better choice would have been Numi Rapace. Huh. That's an interesting... Numi Rapace, to me, as Major Kusanagi, is a potential Blade Runner, the original, a potential Blade Runner level classic. She has that level of intensity, edginess. I don't know what's about to happen. She kind of, even though she's not Asian, she kind of has a little look. She looks a little bit like Major Kusanagi in a way. Um, I, you know, To me, Scarlett Johansson... This is just a pure Hollywood play. I don't see any visual aesthetic connection. I don't see anything. There's nothing here for me. But I like robot geishas, so I'm in. So <laughs> I'm a big hypocrite. I'm going to watch this. I'm definitely going to see this. Well, let me know. Let me know if it's garbage. I'll let you see it first, and you can tell me whether or not I'll I'll go. You know, 
bring out a katana and like chop up the film reel or something like that. <laughs> katana. Okay, so moving on, we want to talk about fashion. This week, Nike announced the release of the Hyper Adapt sneakers. Now, these sneakers are basically self-lacing sneakers that are essentially kind of like a callback to Back to the Future. For those who haven't seen it, get out of the rock that you're living under. Uh, <laughs> for those, you know... Basically, there's one scene in the future where Marty McFly uh, puts on a pair of Nikes in the future that are self-lacing. And at the time, this was, you know, just a bit of science fiction magic on screen. But Nike has actually gone through the process of making this into a real thing. And these shoes uh, will be released on November 28th. There's actually a video. We'll post it in the show notes, a link to the video in the show notes. There's a video that actually shows the sneakers opening and closing. And apparently it works um, using an internal cable system made from fishing line and a pressure sensor in the sole. And throughout the day, as you walk around what they're calling an algorithmic pressure equation, uh, basically, turn yeah, hey, science, it, <laughs> it determines if the shoe needs to be tightened or loosened and you can kind of make your own adjustments. And it makes this really, I think, cool, but it, I, I could imagine it becoming annoying after a while. But it makes this really cool whirring sound when you press oh. the, you know, tighten and loosen uh, hidden area on the side of the shoe. There's an LED on the bottom of the shoe and then at the on the heel, on the back of the heel, there are tiny LED lights that are indicators for when your battery is, you know, low, half charged, almost dead. What'd you think? I mean, do you, are, would you buy these? Would you wear these? It was funny because you were saying that you, the whirring thing was kind of cool to you, but could be annoying. Uh, when I heard the whirring noise the first time, I was like, oh, no, no, no. They need to make that quiet because I can't have my shoes making that much noise. Yeah, but that, that tells you it's working. The magic of technology is working when that well, sound is going on. Well, I think the the shoes have like a two-week battery life, which is right. nice. But um, one of the things in the video that I was watching that got me, I was like, this is just another thing to charge. Yeah. And oh, 100%. Yeah. Like, I was just like, ah. So, you know, with the, the iPhone 7 and, you know, <laughs> headphone jack gate. Right. You know, like now I got to charge Bluetooth headphones if I want to use an iPhone. Uh, what 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 next do I have to charge? I have to charge my Fitbit. I have to charge my uh, headphones. I have to charge my shoes now. Seriously? You're hitting on the point that was the biggest deal to me because I'm looking at it. I have to be honest. Looking at the, the whole, you know, presentation, I was very excited. I was like, okay, these sho- shoes actually don't look that corny. Like I can see yeah. wearing these. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning. I'm, I'm getting excited. Keep talking. Keep talking. And then they pull out the charger and it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's an eye and it's an Apple watch esque, you know, magnetic charger that you slap onto the bottom of the shoe. And I was, I said, wait, what, huh? Cause I, I, I do not, in, unless you're a hardcore sneaker head who just, I, I don't know what kind of, Hey, maybe, maybe me, I, maybe I'll do it. I don't know. But that means you're going to have to like an Apple watch. Basically, anyone who ha- out there who has an Apple watch, it's, you know, you have that little circular th- magnetic charging pad that you slap onto the back of your Apple watch. Basically, they made these bigger ones that slap onto the back of uh, or to the bottom of the sh- of each shoe. So it's not a platform. You don't just put the two shoes on some platform. No, it's like a wire. And maybe that was a prototype. Maybe they have a, a platform. They, where you can just put the shoes on. Hopefully they will. But it just seemed really unwieldy. And just imagine if you're on a trip, you know, if you're traveling. Yeah. Now you have to carry the, this bulky, two bulky charging units just so you can lace your shoes. Got You got to remember the last time you charged your shoes right. and how much you walked and right. like what the that particular thing was. And it just, you know, it's. I think it's great from a sense, and I think they talk about it in the in the video. I think it's great from a sense of you know not everyone has full mobility in their hands. This could be really useful for that. They talk to a designer in the in the video and how the LED because we we have shoes now, particularly with kids that are really popular that have LEDs and light up when you walk and it's super cool. Um, but I believe they say there's actual functionality with these LEDs, like it. It'll be blue if it's fully charged, and it'll start to turn yellow, and that means you have maybe a week left, and it'll turn red when you need to start charging it. 
So, like, there's functionality with that, and I love it when, you know, fashion, especially in fashion technology, where they marry form and function, like, that makes me so happy when they do it. But this whole thing about it is, it's just like, is this really something that I need? No, it's going to be a super luxury thing. And then I think they talk about athletes wearing this. I can't imagine athletes, you know, who are super picky about their shoes and how it affects their performance. Can you imagine athletes using this shoe? I can see an athlete maybe in their off time wearing this, Mm -hmm. not for uh, performance, because if you notice at the bottom of the shoe, there's a very blocky bulky Mm. area, which I'm assuming contains all the mechanics, all the electronics, that is kind of a flex area. And that would generally, so what that tells me is this probably isn't a performance shoe. This isn't a shoe that's probably going to be good for running or jumping or exercise. It's like a show-off shoe. It's like a, a leisure shoe. And how heavy do you think it is? Like, I don't think I saw anywhere that says like how much it weighs. Like, do you think it would be more like a boot sneaker? I'm a big Nike fan. I have a ton of Nike shoes. I love their products. They put a big premium on lightness. So I'm guessing Mm -hmm. based on what I saw from the video and what I know about the company, I'm guessing that it's going to be a pretty light shoe. You know, I'm just thinking about the bulk in terms of flexibility. The other question is price. Like they haven't talked about the price. If I look at the charging units, I look at the lights, uh, I look at, oh, it's back to the future. Yeah. This is probably going to be like 500 bucks. Wow. I'm I'm calling it. I'm just going to take a a wild guess and say 500 because if you look at, you know, shoes like, um, well, just a regular pair of really nice Nike shoes, not even really nice, just decent Nike shoes will run you about a hundred and change now. The LeBrons, I haven't purchased LeBrons, but I know they're like in the multiple hundreds of dollars, something like 200, there may be some $300 ones out there. Um, so if that's what you're getting for normal wear, you know, just like unadorned, like no, non-technology embedded shoes, I can't imagine they're going to sell these for anything less than, okay, maybe four, maybe 400. I'm guessing if you're at Nike and you're thinking, okay, people are paying $350 for the lowest end model of the Apple Watch, something they don't need. And is basically, for many people, a fashion statement. We're Nike. This is what we do. We can probably get four to 500. If you're telling me that I have a choice between shoes that lace themselves, I'm like, let's be, let's be real. They look really cool. Shoes that lace themselves or an Apple Watch, I'm going to buy the Apple Watch. I'm going to set my limit at around two, two and change. If it's in that range, I'll consider buying them. I don't expect them to be anywhere in that range. So I'm guessing I'm probably not going to have these shoes. And everyone else will have to be cool and run around with the self-lacing shoes and charger shoes. But if it's anywhere near that price point that I mentioned just now, I'll give it a try because it just looks really cool. Um, I want to live in the future. That's what we're about. So thank you, Nike, for giving this a try, even though it right now looks kind of impractical and it looks like it's going to take some getting used to and You'll probably have to figure out some other options for charging and design. But thank you, Nike, for doing this because this is very cool. We're living in the future. Back to the future. Back to the future with shoes. And so moving on, we want to talk about one other trailer that came out this week, which is Passengers. We boarded the Avalon with a destination. 120-year cybernation means we'll wake up in a new century on a new planet. But a year ago, everything changed. Hello? Anybody here? Hello? Do you know what's going on? Nobody else is awake. I think something went wrong with the hibernation pods. We woke up too soon. 90 years too soon. This can't be happening. We have to go back to sleep. We can't. And so that's Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Star-Lord Pratt uh, cavorting uh, like two <laughs> kids when the parents have gone away, you know, or you know, they're just like on this spacecraft, just having fun. And then as you see in the trailer, hijinks ensue. Danger comes. You saw the trailer, right? In or out? I'm shrugging, like confused, because why? And also, okay. Uh, the cast is really interesting. Um, you know, Chris Pratt has Chris Pratt has the sci-fi chops, especially you know, as you mentioned, Star Lord. 
Jennifer Lawrence has been in X-Men, so I wasn't, like, not that she can't be into genre stuff, but it was just kind of like an interesting pairing, because these are both uh, actors who are kind of known for their comedy chops, I guess, or just their, you know, kind of their charisma in in a light humorous form and this doesn't look like it's a like like that type of thing but at the same time it's a space opera romance if i'm getting the the tone of the trailer right so it's it's just a little like for me the ultimate sci-fi romance film is gattaca Mm. and i just think it's it's because you know it is a love story but it's also a story about personal growth and it's very poignant, and the sci-fi elements are interwoven really seamlessly. This, I'm not sure. It just seems like it's tacking on some action with some like sadness because their two characters are cryogenically, or maybe not cryogenically, but they're in like deep space travel sleep for traveling long distances. But there's a malfunction, and they wake up too soon, and only the two of them have woken up. And oh my god last man and woman on a ship they can't go back to sleep they're stuck together so like there's like the sad part of that but also i'm falling in love with you this sort of it's just it's just tonally it feels scatterbrained to me well you have two affable goofballs uh, you know just to call back to what you're talking about in terms of their career and what they're both known for they're both two affable goofballs that generally do comedic stuff but the thing is in a in a romance slash drama usually that's left to one character you have one who's kind of like the serious intense one and one is kind of like oh the lovable goof here we have two lovable goofballs playing opposite each other. So I think that's maybe part of what you're feeling is that kind of like, wait a minute, what's happening here? I'm on this. I'm on the same page. I'm not a huge fan of Jennifer Lawrence. Um, She seems like a very nice person, like, you know, in the real world, but mystique, eh, uh, hunger games, super meh, Chris Pratt. I love this guy. Star Lord is the man. Um, I don't, you know, I know he came from the TV world. I'm not familiar with his work in the TV realm. Parks and Rec, super great. He's great on that show. Yeah, but his work on uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was amazing. I'm in on Chris Pratt. Jennifer Lawrence is kind of like, at this point, you know, yeah, God bless you. You got another job. But, you know, <laughs> I, he's just, I, you know, can we get, you know, can, there are other people who we can, you know, put populate in these roles. I, don't know, I feel like I'm just hating on all the Hollywood actresses now. No, but, you know, like the other thing is that, you know, this, I, the interesting thing about this trailer is that it seems like it's a romantic science fiction film. Like we mm. have... You know, that's not something that we get a lot. We get a lot of science fiction where things are blowing up. Uh, There's great existential crises. Uh, There's a lot of questions about the future. But if there's romance, it's a subplot. This seems like the romance is the plot. Well, I think there's a reason for that. I don't think romance tends to work that well in science fiction um, as as the main plot. Take, for instance, Solaris. I mean, that was George Clooney, Mr. Mm-hmm. at the time, at the peak of his hunk powers. And it sunk like a rock. Um, even in, like, you know, your favorite, Star Wars, they keep the romance really, really off to the side with just little glimmers, glints, you know, just like tiny hints of romance here and there. And then they get back to the, you know, real stuff. Yeah. And and when they did put romance like front and center in Attack of the Clones, what happened? This is the worst movie. Some of the buzz that I saw online was that they're like touting this as possibly the next big romantic science fiction. This could change everything type film. I, I just was kind of confused about the, the trailer in general, and I swear to God, if I see one more movie where a dude turns to a girl or a girl turns to a guy and says, do you trust me? I might blow my brains out. I can't. Victoria, do you trust me? I just yeah, joke. Oh, no. <laughs> walked right into that. Now, um, I think what the, the only buzz that I could see, other than the special effects, which look pretty solid, is that these are two of the hottest actors right now. Hot in terms of cultural resonance and hot visually. I mean, these are two beautiful people. They both are on a very, you know, strong career trajectory right now. And so that's the only thing I can think of that they're banking on this because, you know, honestly, we don't even see a hint that anyone else, the so-called passengers are brought to life, you know, woken up at any point. 
So it looks like this is maybe just them for most of the film. Hmm. Are they that interesting? Do I want to watch an entire film where it's just about them? Maybe I'm missing something there. Maybe aliens come. Maybe I haven't seen the script. Maybe something, some horrible thing comes and it's not just them. We'll see. I, you know, honestly though, just can we get different actors? This is what I love about the golden age of TV that we're in right now. Um, Mr. Robot just won an Emmy. Rami Malik, you know, gave a great speech at the Emmys for his win. And, you know, Rami Malik, when he came on, I mean, he'd already been a working actor for years. Uh, so it's not, he's not new to acting, but he wasn't a known name. But I remember one of the things that fascinated me about Mr. Robot was that I knew none of the actors, not the lead, not the the only guy I knew was um Christian Mr. Slater. Yeah, his father, Christian Slater. And Christian Slater was what? A bit character off to the side. He was he was he was basically a shadow. Everyone else were essentially either character actors or new actors or I mean it was it was great. And it reminded me of kind of like that golden age of, of movies kind of in the seventies when you had a lot of character actors that weren't necessarily box office smash hit stars put into these various roles that where, where the story dominated everything and, and the look and the cinematography dominated everything. So that's why I'm, I'm right now. I'm a much bigger fan of television than film. And it's for this reason, you know, you, you come up with a great plot. Of, you know, this ship, you know, on this, I don't know if it's hundreds of years, but, you know, extremely long journey. And these two people are, you know, woken up and, and it's Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt. Really? (laughs) Those are the two dramatic people that I'm going, that I'm supposed to be pulled into for most of this film on this empty ship. Eh, Okay. This Again, this is why I'm more in on TV now. This This is an obvious romance film. I didn't get sparks between them from the trailer. That That's another thing. I, I so, mean, we could be missing it, but there seemed to be very little chemistry there. Which, and, you know, if you're alone on a ship in the void of space, I think chemistry is kind of important. It's the only important thing. Like, what what are they going to do? Have a have a triangle with Michael Sheen robot? Like, a triangle. <laughs> a triangle. I don't know what a triangle is. Maybe that's one of the new fangled uh, things happening. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, what's, what's a triangle? Okay. I left a word out there. Do I have to go to Urban Dictionary? Triangle? Okay, so that was Passengers. And so I neglected to mention at the top of the show that this week we're going to talk about self-driving cars, the reality versus the fiction. So this week, the New York Times uh, published a story that basically helped the Department of Transportation here in the U.S. announce a 15-point guideline, a set of guidelines for how we can move forward, how car companies, how Local municipalities can move forward with paving the way for self-driving cars. This isn't a rule. These, this isn't a law. They're saying that they're going to work on more official, you know, rules, but right now these are just guidelines and they're meant to basically help current regulations apply to driverless cars that are slowly making their way onto the road. The fact that the Department of, the, of Transportation was involved in this was huge. And I think it was seen by many as a, a sign that this is happening. If you thought self-driving cars were maybe a Silicon Valley fad or kind of like a wish on the part of some technology companies, no. Uh, the U.S. government is acknowledging that this is not only a real thing, but a viable thing. And it was interesting, right before that report from the New York Times came out, the co-founder of Lyft uh, wrote a Medium post. He expects Lyft, the ride-sharing company that competes with Uber, he expects that company to have a fleet of mostly autonomous vehicles on the road within five years. Now, I I don't know how that sounds to you. Five years sounds incredibly ambitious to me. It sounds very short to me. Like I, Not that I don't think the technology exists. What was it? Last month? Uh, middle of last month? Uber started running a pilot program for driverless cars in Pittsburgh. So that's being tested there now. So, you know, that technology exists or at least the the very early stages of that technology exists, but you know, if you if you talk about driverless cars in in the vision that uh Lyft's co-founder um is thinking about them, the regulations needed for that and just the logistics of it 
I think five years is way too ambitious for that just because, you know, the different states, at least, and we're talking from uh, a U.S. standpoint, different states have different traffic laws. You know, some states you can turn right on red, some some you can't, like New York City, you can't do that. All of that and just getting different states to pass it, getting all the safety down to the point where you're 100% sure that the sensor in the car is not going to, like, botch what it's sensing. Five years, fully up and running uh, to the point where you, you know, I can get rid of my car and never have to drive it again and never have to pay car insurance. All of that, five years is is. That sounds crazy. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, yeah, I was talking to a colleague the other day. We haven't even hit the 10 year anniversary of the smartphone or at least the Apple iPhone smartphone. This is still a technology that is fairly young. It's still the kinks are still being worked out. Um, they're still playing with how it works. What's the right form factor? Samsung in particular is having its own troubles with the smartphone, <laughs> you know, but, and, and then this is something that your life doesn't depend on. Again, this is on the level. I would say a smartphone is one step above a, a camera. Okay. It's not something you need, but it can be incredibly useful. But in the case of a smartphone, you know, it might save your life. It might help you do work, but your life generally doesn't depend on a smartphone. In the case of a car, your life depends on that car operating correctly. Not only your life, but if you have children. So, I mean, you know, to me, as a tech reporter, analyst, the first thing I always think about with this kind of stuff is, okay, you know, and I, I ask the innovators this kind of stuff. Okay, you're so gung-ho, you're so excited about this. Would you put your one-month-old baby in one of these? You know, would you give your one-month-old baby a note galaxy, a galaxy seven note to hold and play with. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, look, look, I mean, it's not funny because a kid did get injured by a galaxy note seven recently. These are the kind of questions you have to answer when you're talking about emerging tech, emerging technologies and putting those technologies in mainstream users hands. It, to build off that, uh, one thing I was thinking about was security because you know, there was that video with Wired, I believe, where they had a hacker just hack a car. And that wasn't even a driverless car. Can you just imagine someone hacking a, all these driverless cars on, on the on the freeway just to cause mass rampage? Or how, how can you secure these cars, which will probably be relying at least somewhat on wireless, if not like 4G or 5G when it comes out? Like, how can you secure that? How can you build the protocols for that? This is the problem with Silicon Valley or just tech innovation in general is often it's imagined in a kind of utopian setting, meaning they'll come up with an innovation and the hope is, hey, if all the humans act right, this will work. For instance, Airbnb, you know, the, <laughs> it's a great idea. Let people rent out their homes and the only middleman, the only middle person is the Internet, this system that you log in and it's almost like a social network. You post your home is available. Someone looks at it. Oh, very cool home. Here's who I am. Here's my profile. I'm not crazy. I have a job. I'm a friendly person. Hey, I'm thinking about renting your place. Oh, sure. Great. Supposed to work out, right? Yes. And in a utopian situation, yes. But people are people. And that's why Airbnb has its big racial discrimination problem where a lot of people don't want to rent out their homes to people that don't look like them. And so now they have that big problem on their hands. Same thing, you know, with with other technologies. And, and so, like, with this self-driving car situation, it's kind of like in a situation where we hadn't been groomed for decades as Americans to own our own cars and use cars almost as a symbol of independence – Sure, maybe in that situation or in a different situation, it might work. But we we treat our cars like horses, particularly in the Midwest. I mean, mm -hmm. not having your own car to just go and do whatever you want. It's kind of like you're basically handicapped in, in certain ways. And so so when I think about this, I'm listening to all these guys. So I'm listening to Uber. You know, Google has its own self-driving car program. 
in development. You know, now Lyft is talking about it. The government's getting in. And then I think about, you know, there's a program in Singapore where they're rolling out self-driving uh, taxi cabs. Now, Singapore sounds a lot more realistic. Singapore has very tight control of its city's operations. It's smaller. Public transportation is in high use. You know, it's not like, you know, the average Singaporean need feels the need to have a car, unlike many Americans. So taking an example like Singapore makes sense with regard to self-driving cars. But in a, in such a big country like the U.S., where we depend on and love our cars and trucks, five years, I think that's absurd. I don't even think it's unrealistic. I think it's absurd. I think the only way uh, the network that the that Lyft is describing, where we can have self-driving cars work in you know, perfect unison and totally create this utopian transport commute society is that if you have a very good public transportation system to go along with it. So I could see, I could see this eventually working in Asia because they have such amazing uh, trains there. Um, maybe even in Europe because they also have an advanced train network system, but the U S you know, Amtrak really Amtrak is pretty, it's, it's, it's not good. It's not good at all. We always like to marry the innovations in our real world with films. And so the first thing that came to mind, thinking about all this stuff that just happened this past week, was a Minority Report, which usually when people bring up that film, they think of the, you know, touch, the gesture interface. But there's actually another really cool scene in Minority Report where Tom Cruise hops into a self-driving car. Actually, most of the characters uh, jump into self-driving cars. And it's amazing, like the, the roadways that they envision in this film. I encourage you, if you haven't seen the film, I encourage you to go see it. And if you have seen it, maybe go rewatch it just to go look at the self-driving car parts, because it really does show kind of what uh, a highway would look like with a bunch of self-driving cars. I mean, people are just talking to each other. It's essentially what, you know, uh, I went to CES uh, last year and Mercedes showed off their concept vehicle, which was a self-driving car. And part of their concept artwork was showing a family just lounging in the middle of the car as though it was like a tiny living room as the car took care of the driving duties. And that's kind of what they showed in Minority Report. Uh, an older and a little, I'd say, cruder example in the film world would be Total Recall, where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger jumps into a taxi and it's a self-driving taxi. And they actually have kind of like a little mannequin that is kind of like supposed to, I guess, make you feel like someone, quote unquote, <laughs> someone is driving you somewhere. And so this idea is not new. It's been in you know Hollywood for some time. It's a popular idea. But, you know, the logistics, particularly in a place like America, again, if we were in Tokyo and they were being this aggressive about self-driving cars, it would be a lot more credible because Tokyo, again, is a very tightly controlled city. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, in terms of uh, public transport in Asia, Tokyo has one of the best train systems on the planet. It's on time. It's efficient. It's clean. You know, it, it's just one of the most, it, you know, I used to love the New York subway system. No, no, no. Now I love the Tokyo subway system because it's that efficient. It's a wonder. We haven't achieved that nationally in the States. I don't care if it's uh, Lyft <laughs> pairing with GM. I don't you see know, this being realistic. You bring up a really interesting point with Total Recall where, you know, uh, where you say that there's the mannequin to make you feel better, that you, you have like the illusion of a sense that someone is actually driving this car. And it just brought me back to, again, when I was in Tokyo last week, um, on my way to Odaiba, there is actually a driverless train car that goes there called the Yurikamome. There's no conductor in there whatsoever. And the first time I ever rode that, I was freaked out because there's so many thoughts that go into your head about like, well, well what, what happens when the train stalls? Because, you know, um, that happens when there's bad weather in Tokyo because so many of the trains are above ground. And, you know, the Yuri Kamome, if you don't know about it, is it goes in a loop 
around Tokyo Bay. So it's very exposed in that sense. And it's driverless. There's no conductor. And until you get into a driverless train, um, you don't realize how much comfort you get from seeing a conductor driving that train. And it just goes to show that, you know, other technologies where we have autopilot planes, like we planes are on autopilot most of the time. Pilots for, you know, they don't, they do a lot in the cockpit, but they don't actually spend every like waking second when they're piloting the plane, piloting the plane with their hands on the controls and stuff like that. But even in that instance where the autopilot is extremely advanced in these planes, we have humans in there with like one hand on the wheel just to make sure everything is okay. From my own personal experience, getting into a train that was driverless and feeling very uncomfortable at first, and then eventually getting really comfortable with it because the technology was so smooth, I'm just not entirely sure that even if we had driverless cars, you wouldn't need a licensed driver in there just in case something went wonky or like the algorithm went wrong or the AI wasn't responding properly or maybe your sensor got bumped because I don't know lightning struck it because there was a inclement weather or some one of the many myriads of possibilities that could just knock you straight off course because you know as you said life does not work perfectly all all the time I've actually ridden the Yuri Yuri Kamome many times because I've been to Odaiba a billion times I love it there and the thing that struck me about it was that the passengers are generally oblivious like they're not riding it, you know, in wonder, like, oh, you know, a robot is taking us to, you know, future, pl-, you know, because Odaiba, I, man, anyone out there listening, if you haven't, if you ever get a chance to go to Tokyo, definitely go to Odaiba because it looks like a city from the future. It really does look like, I don't know, like Logan's Run or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does. The buildings are incredible. And it's not just the architecture. Even when you go into the buildings, or at least some of the buildings, the science and technology buildings, there's some really cool stuff going on. But uh, yeah, none of the passengers were really freaked out. I think that's kind of like a Tokyo thing or a Japan thing. I mean, technology in Japan, again, this is part of the reason why I moved there. It's part of the fabric of their culture. And there's not a lot of uh, reverence paid to old technology. If something new comes along that works, they run with it. Whereas here, you know, I don't know if it's a matter of dollars or, you know, tradition, you know, sometimes tradition, but, you know, technology often seems to have more stumbling blocks. I guess maybe because the country's bigger. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. But we don't seem to adopt advanced technologies as quickly here. But I think it's particularly troublesome in this case because self-driving cars are just... I think the only thing I'm not disagreeing with the Lyft co-founders assertions or the predictions from anyone else that this will all happen. I'm just disagreeing with it happening in five years or I'm even going, I'll say 10 years. I think 10 years is ambitious to have an America, not, I'm not talking about New York. I'm not talking about LA or San Francisco or some, you know, city that is already kind of heavily populated and already, you know, playing with a lot of technologies. I mean, here in New York, um, we have already rolled out on the subways, touchscreen displays where you can, you know, look up the subway maps and, you know, play with the maps via touchscreen. Have you messed with this at all? Yeah, I have actually. It's, it's, yes. I mean, if you're like me and you've been living outside of New York for a long time and you come back, it feels like, you know, New York has kind of taken half step into the future when you see something like that. So, I mean, this stuff can happen, I believe, in certain cities piecemeal over time. But to say that if you're Lyft, that in five years, most of your fleet will be driverless or that any company's fleet will be mostly driverless in five years. No, nah, I, I, I just I, I feel and I, I really feel it feels funny saying this because I believe if you're a, a Lyft co-founder, you know what you're talking about. This is your business. But, I, you know, I've been writing about technology, f- you know, following emerging and edge technology far too long. And, you know, I, I've talked to government officials regularly about all types of issues. And I just know how difficult it is to get, you know, rules, local rules passed for, you know, just a street sign. Okay. You know, much less 
self-driving cars. The other thing I think that's being missed that the Lyft co-founder, I feel glossed over, is the issue of human jobs. So at one point, he says in his Medium post, he says, okay, so you may ask, this is him talking, I'm paraphrasing, you may ask, you know, well, if all the cars are self-driving, will that mean we'll no longer need drivers? What happens then? And he says, well, actually, we'll still need them, you know, because in the initial phases, there'll be like this transition period and we'll still need human drivers to kind of support. I think he was saying some sort of like gap in service or whatever, you know, and he pegged that as like maybe being like the first five years. So let's just go with his prediction. Let's say five years passes and Lyft's fleet is, let's just say, 80 percent self-driving automated. It worked out. Guess what? Now you have all these human drivers out of work in five years. People who I've, I talk to, I, I mean, everyone out there has a different relationship to their <laughs> Uber driver, their Lyft driver. I talk to my drivers. I don't always want to. Sometimes I'm forced into the relationship, but you know, that's just how <laughs> New York works sometimes. And a lot of people have started driving for Uber and for Lyft and for other services, other similar services. As a career choice to pay their bills, not as a hobby, to pay their rent, to, to pay their mortgage, to put food on the table of their family. And so if you're just going to, you know, wholesale switch out those jobs for robots, what happens to the people? And I think this almost goes beyond, not almost, this goes beyond self-driving cars. As we continue to try to automate things, whether it's customer service for banks on the phone or, you know, train conductors or taxi cab drivers, as we continue to d displace human workers, what happens to their jobs? I mean, if we're in a utopian society, what happens is, oh, they get free income from the government and life is fine. But that's not the situation. And like, just to talk about that interim period where the lift uh, where Lyft is talking about how they'll need a kind of a human co-pilot for, for these, these cars. Actually, the New York Times, they went on a pilot run with the Uber driverless cars, uh, program that's going on in Pittsburgh right now, and they took a video. So I'm watching this video, and it's kind of insane, but it, it looks like you know, they, they have the Uber employees in the car at all times with their hands on the wheel. They're not doing anything. The car is doing it, basically. But there there's, like, these two buttons, and it just basically, at any given time, there's a manual override. Because there are situations where the driverless car just can't respond to human input. Or not human input, per se, but, like, input from the environment. So they'll be going, and it's a right on red. And the Uber car won't go, and the cars behind them are getting impatient, and they start honking. Well, if you were a human driver, you would instinctively know that this is a, a situation where you could go, and it'll be fine, or whatnot. And, or, you know, you could see a turn coming up, or there's a tiny fluffy animal that you probably don't want to kill, or whatever, your neighbor's dog's spot. I just don't see how the AI, or the algorithms, or just this hodgepodge of so the, the, the Uber ones have this gigantic camera and radar that is rendering their environment at all times. I just don't see how all these disparate pieces of technology can just, you know, get together in that time period to create a seamless product. It's exactly like you said. It's kind of absurd. There are just so many variables on the ground, so many more objects moving around randomly. Like you said, little children, a ball, you know, falls out into the street. Um, maybe a dog runs out in the street. Maybe something that the radar didn't pick up. Maybe the car stops, but you need it to move, you know, and if there, you know, what I mean, you know what I mean? like yeah. what if it, you know, rolls over something and you need it to move, but the car system has determined no, an accident has occurred and I'm going to stop and not move. Is there now a function for me, the human to take over, you know, or let's I'm the passenger. Can I take over and somehow get this car off of the human, the, the animal? I mean, there's so many variables involved. We still have exploding smartphones. <laughs> stop, you know. But anyway, that, I was kind of going backwards. Um, jobs. Agreed. I really do think, you know, we're in great danger of 
you know, I mean, if you look in the history books, they had the thing called the Luddite Revolution um, or the Luddite uprisings in Europe, you know, and, you know, that was related to technology and technology displacing jobs. I, yeah, I don't think we're thinking enough about the idea that these so-called self-driving trucks, self-driving taxis, you know, all these automated systems, they're putting people out of work. And guess what? People need to work. Well, this isn't Star Trek yet. We don't have the Star Trek economy where everyone gets a guaranteed home and replicator food rations and life is just great. And, you know, no, people need work. Just to play devil's advocate, I think a lot of uh, the Silicon Valley types who would be super bullish on this would say, well, you know, just the economy would create different job paths for these people. But I, I guess my concern would be that these would be white collar jobs, which would require college education and a long, you know, a long period leading up before people could take these jobs. And you would lose a lot of blue collar jobs that, I mean, let's face it, anyone can learn how to drive and get a driver's license and have a pretty good career path through these, you know, being a taxi driver or being an Uber driver, being a Lyft driver. So, you know, it's not it's not an equivalent exchange if you want to go think about it that way. Yeah, and I've talked to Uber drivers who are very happy. Very, I mean, not all of them. I mean, sure, some have complaints, but I've talked to some who are very happy. They seem to be very pleased with the money they make. And you're right. It is more of a blue-collar work situ labor situation versus white-collar, which was the same thing um, with the Luddites in the 19th century. I mean, their whole thing was, you know, weaving technology uh, was basically threatening to displace them. And... I mean, that's a blue collar job. That's labor. Blue collar jobs fell to car factories. I mean, if now the cool thing is when you watch a TV commercial and they show a car being built, what do they show you? They generally show you these super fast, cool, efficient robots constructing a car as it like, you know, goes on the conveyor belt. That scene is cool now. But guess what? Millions of jobs are gone. Poof. You know, like jobs that help people buy homes, send people to college. Those jobs are gone. And guess what? The colleges are still there. The colleges are still expensive. You know, homes are still there. You know, real estate still costs, you know, not an insignificant amount of money in most parts of the country. And yet the jobs are, you know, being taken by these automated systems, robots. And now they want us to buy into self-driving cars. And, you know, look, I'm all for it. Just when I saw Minority Report, I thought, oh, wow, that that looks like a cool future. But we can't simply innovate our way into the future without also taking care to bring everyone along, not just the people who can afford, you know, a twelve, fifteen hundred dollar new, you know, Apple iPhone seven plus, but also the people who can only afford Maybe a $50 Android phone on the cheap that's, you know, pay as you go. We need to think about everybody. An interesting counterpoint is that millennials, which many people have said are bad at earning money, are, you know, we're not driving cars as much. You know, I didn't learn as a millennial. I didn't learn how to drive until I was 26, 27 years old. There just never was a need to. Um, and on top of that, being a new car owner, it costs a lot of money to actually have a car, to maintain a car, to pay the car insurance on my car and, you know, repairs and all of that stuff. So on the flip side, maybe the thing we're not thinking about is that maybe this utopian driverless car society that we work off is would actually save poor people money because it would give them a more affordable way to get to work that's safer, that, you know, they're not going to be penalized if they don't have a car or get their car repossessed because they can't pay their loans on time and all these predatory loan companies that are out there. So, you know, on the flip side, it maybe in the short term, it doesn't make sense and it could put people out of jobs, but, you know, it could enable more people who are not necessarily drivers and are in struggling circumstances to actually get greater opportunity at a lower cost to themselves. That's an amazing point. Agreed. And I was about to say, wait a minute, the reason you don't know how to drive is because you're a New Yorker, which is common to New Yorkers. But then I thought about my recent trip to L.A. and how common Uber is becoming in L.A., where, you know, 
you know, in years past when I would visit LA, you know, the refrain was always, if you move out here, you have to have a car. And that's no longer the case. You have people living in LA now, moving there and people who are from LA who in some cases don't even have a car. They're just taking Uber everywhere. And so that's actually, yeah, there is a, a, a case example, at least in LA right now. And I don't know, I'm, I'm sure it's even more so in the Bay Area, Northern California. There is a, a kind of a use case example showing us how this could work in a non-dense metropolitan area. And so, yeah, and, and the point about insurance and car payments and all that for, you know, lower income people. Yeah, okay. Good, good point. Good point. Uh, we will see, I guess, how all this plays out. And I agree that all this should happen. I just, I'm, I'm not, you know, the time span. Yeah. I, I don't think five years is going to happen. I think maybe if I'm going to peg it, I would put this, you know, if uh, entirely, let's just take, I don't know, let's take Austin. Let's take Austin, Texas. I would, I could see an entirely self-driving car filled. Well, no, that's Texas. Texans really love their cars. That's a bad <laughs> choice. Let's go Miami. I could see an entirely self-driving car populated Miami, uh, or at least, pri pr you know, primarily self-driving car populated Miami, maybe in 20 years. I could see that. Yeah. Uh, 10 years, I think would be pretty fast and aggressive. 20 years, I could see it. Yeah. So, uh, hopefully by then you and I will both have our immortality chip and our uh, kernel brain implant that allows us to think <laughs> faster than most machines, and we won't even care about this. You know, maybe we'll be able to teleport by then, and then and then what? Then we won't even need these. That's actually the real technology I'm waiting for: the teleportation. I would give it. I'd pay all kinds of money for that. I would do whatever is necessary to get teleportation. You know, child labor in another country. No, just <laughs> no. no, but I mean, we do need the teleportation thing. Please, scientists, if you're listening, we need that. Uh, and with that, we will call an end to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and Google Play. And you can visit us on the interwebs at Twitter dot com slash Mars Magazine or marsmagazine.com this has been a Dario Strange with Big Song and we will see you in the future